What's up, everybody? This is Tanner from TamanBaseballFan.com. I was thinking a lot recently about uh, innovations that have been introduced uh, into our hobby. Uh, you know, it's kind of fun because a lot of people normally just think, okay, baseball card is, you know, two and a half inches by three and a half inches of cardboard with the picture of a baseball player in front of it. Uh, you know, like even in the 19th century with uh, Old Judge, they started doing premium pieces called cabinet cards, N173s, uh, that are that were basically oversized uh, cards, kind of like the size of a box loader, if you know what those are from you know, nowadays, and Alan Ginner and Gypsy Queen, I think they do those also. Uh, you would have to save up some coupons and send them in, and uh, you would be able to get a cabinet card of you know a certain player from a list. I don't know if you picked one or they gave one to you randomly i think you're able to pick one uh, which is you know pretty cool so that means that if you're looking for a lesser known player nowadays it's going to be significantly more difficult to find because uh, if somebody wanted let's say a uh, king kelly uh, they'd be able to uh, you know probably find one a lot quicker than uh, i don't know abner boyce or something you know so th that's kind of uh, you know it's kind of how it worked uh, turkey red of course uh, back in 1911, I think it was. Those were send-ins as well, um, if I remember correctly. And so there were there were little, you know, different, you know, types of uh, promotions and uh, different type of card designs throughout the you know next several decades. And uh, interestingly enough, you, you have, uh, if I remember correctly, I think uh, so. Bowman. Uh, starts out with their first set in 48. Their last set is 55. And believe that Tops, that's when Tops bought Bowman, if I remember correctly. So from 55 uh, all the way to 1980, there's not really a whole lot of competition. Okay, so you've got 1963 Fleer, and I don't even know the legal ramifications of that set, by the way. Uh, if Fleer had any problems with it or whatever, but uh, you know, it's a real nice that I love 1963 Fleer. I have got so many fond memories. If I remember correctly, I think the toughest one in that set is uh, uh, is the checklist, um, actually. But uh, it's a great set. It's chock full of stars. There's you know Willie Mays. There's Roberto Clemente, Sandy Koufax. Just a bunch of great, great players. It's it's an amazing checklist. Uh, I know that Fleer did like some like Ted Williams set in 1959, but you know that's you know kind of like a you know subset deal. Uh, but anyway, so going through the next several decades, there's not really a whole lot, or a few decades, I guess you could say, there's not really a whole lot of uh, umph. You know what I'm saying? Like not a lot of uh, ingenuity. It seems like that's being born out of these cards. So 81. Uh, Fleer and Donders pop up. And I think Topps takes them to the court for a couple reasons. Number one, saying you can't create baseball cards, only we can. And also, you can't put gum in your packs because that's what Donders and Fleer did in 81 as well. Uh, only we could do that. And so Topps, if I remember correctly, won the lawsuit about uh, the, uh, the gum. So Donners started putting in puzzle pieces. Fleer started putting in stickers. But they lost uh, the lawsuit when it comes to them being the only people that could create 
uh, baseball cards. So we're off to the races from 1981 on because there's competition all of a sudden. And so Tops isn't the only game in town. Uh, Donerson Fleer wants to take that market share. And so they're trying to do the best that they can to one up each other uh, year after year. And I think around uh, 1981 or so, I think is when you start seeing uh, the slogan for Tops, the real one. Okay, so, <laughs> and you can tell like a noticeable difference in uh, design and uh, uh, presentation from a marketing perspective. Uh, you also have little fun things. I think in '83, I think Fleer uh, had like two extra packs per box. I think those boxes were like 38 packs instead of 36 packs. And then of course, Donnerson '82 and '83, they had like a different size box that's like uh, not your standard wax box size. And I think Fleer also had. A, uh, I don't know, they won some sort of award or whatever in 82 or 83 for best set or something. I, it was something like that. I'm trying to, I'm going off a of memory from uh, the boxes that I had in the past. I'm trying to remember what they, what they said. But in any event, you know, they, you see the, the gears grinding where there's like uh, competition. Then, uh, as you know, 88. Uh, score comes on the scene and they have like these full color pictures on the back of the cards and then in 89 upper deck comes in tops decides to bring back bowman resurrect the bowman brand uh and you know upper deck of course is you know iconic probably the number one iconic set of the 80s and then, of course, 90, you have Leaf, and 91, you have uh, Flare Ultra, and Stadium Club, and, you know, and Studio, and, you know, all bets are off from there, right? So, uh, but anyways, you, you think about this, how uh, competition starts coming in. They're trying to one-up each other, and Donruss comes out with these uh, cards called the Elite Series. They decide to serial number them, and score i think starts uh inserting uh, uh autographs a few autographs in 1992 if i remember correctly i think upper deck does it in 91 or 90 maybe even uh, come to think of it and so you start thinking about this so there's like just a handful of them there uh, that have these sorts of like special type cards right imagine what it must have felt like i'm assuming that you're not somebody that's listening right now that actually was back then actually opened one and pulled an autograph or an elite card because the people that pulled those are you know few and far between uh i mean heck i never pulled anything remotely anything like that and i was all about baseball cards baseball cards were my absolute life back then and i never pulled anything uh, crazy like that i actually probably never pulled anything crazy period but anyway so uh, you start thinking about uh, trying to be in the shoes of somebody that actually pulled something like that after being a collector for years and decades and not have not having the ability to pull an autograph or an elite series insert. You know, you, you open a pack of 85 Donners, you get 1985 Donners cards. You open a pack of 1977 Tops, Guess what? Inside that pack is going to be nothing but 1977 Tops cards. 
nothing crazy, nothing wild, just base cards. 81 Fleer, 86 Sonorous, and of course that kind of leads you to, uh, you know, the, the fact that the important cards would be the rookie cards back then. Pulling a Kinseiko Rear Rookie or an A4 Don or so, Don Mattingly. You know, like uh, you have cards out there that are the chase cards, but they're nothing like crazy. They're not, nothing insane. They're not serial numbered. They're not autographed. They're not game used. They're just look like the other cards. And so, uh, you know, you, you fast forward to the early 90s and these cards start popping up and they're super special. And that is when the fuse is lit. The 90s are probably the most innovative uh, decade in all baseball card history is what I would think. What I would tend to say in terms of uh, what they tried to do. You have refractors that come out. Imagine uh, pulling the first refractor uh, from a 93 Finest uh, pack. I mean, first of all, I think those packs, if I remember correctly, back then were like $15 or something like that. So th those weren't even on my radar. It was, it was like that might as well have been like a box of diamonds or something to me back then. But imagine pulling a refractor and which, you know, incidentally, uh, in I three, the finest, uh, <laughs> the, the pack, because the, the refractors, they fell at one per box. So for I three finest, the actual packs that held the refractor, uh, the, the packaging of the pack was actually different than all the others. So you'd be able to know right off which one had the refractor and which one didn't. But, uh, anyways, imagine being able to pull that first I three refractor and tilting it to light and go, wow, this is amazing. It changes colors, you know, like, and even think about Sportflex, for instance, I think that's probably an unsung hero of the 80s. Uh, there's not much love that's given to Sportflex cards, but, you know, if you, uh, if you just uh, think of Sportflex, if you think of the name, I think you, you're probably like me, you automatically imagine your fingernail running up and down the card to make that, you know, zzz, zzz, zzz sound, you know? Uh, but having a card that you can tell back and forth and see a little bit of action, you know, it's really neat. It's really kind of a neat thing. Um, really kind of a, a fun, uh, uh, fun little gimmick that they had there. Uh, and I think it's uh, vastly underrated. Now, they, you know, kind of pulled those into the 90s as well. And they never really took off all that much, I don't think. Uh, I, I wasn't really too terribly wowed by them um, to the point where I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much better than the other cards. But you imagine the people that came up with this, uh, you know, with this technology. And, it, and of course, I think if I remember correctly, I think they had uh, that kind of technology in the 70s for Kellogg's cards, perhaps. I'm not sure if they actually moved, but they had the lenticular technology on there um, at the very least. And... I think there are a few other oddball cards out there that have the same thing, but you know, Sportflex, that's the one that really kind of, uh, you know, gave the, you know, recognition to the Nolan Tickier game when it comes to baseball cards. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, Pinnacle, I think they brought that into some of their cards as well. Maybe Upper Deck did too uh, at some point, but anyway, so you, you continue on through the nineties and year by year, things get crazier and crazier and crazier. So you have the refractors, of course, and 
upper deck, of course, uh, you know, hits hard on the holograms, and everybody loves holograms. Uh, but you also have uh, cards that have uh, that were printed on acetate, where you can see through them, along with holographic material on top of it. And then you have embossed cards, and then you have like you know 3D type style cards, uh, die cut cards, like just all kinds of amazing different types of technology. And as a custom card creator myself, I know, uh, I feel like I know what it's like, uh, what it would have liked to have been a 90s card creator. Like just looking at the wide array of uh, different technologies that are used, that were used uh, or able to be used in cards. And mixing them and matching them and uh, fusing them with uh, certain design techniques and layouts and seeing what works best and what doesn't. Let me tell you guys something. Like for me personally, uh, when it comes to designing something, I could literally uh, spend an entire day looking at a design and imagining it in my head. Uh, <laughs> this just happened to me the other day actually. Uh, imagining it one way in my head then designing it and printing it out and it looking not good at all like nothing like I was like I was hoping I literally did this uh, a couple weeks ago I was actually on my walk just like I am now and I had this idea for a booklet and I was laying it out in my head and I was really excited I came back home probably 11 at night or something and I cracked open Photoshop and I started designing. And I was like, yeah, this is great. I love this. This is excellent. And then uh, I started uh, working at it for probably an hour or two, three hours. I was up to, you know, some, some late hour. And I printed it out and it looked horrible. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. I, I was so bummed. But the thing was, it was the next day I cranked on even harder and I came up with something that I just loved. I thought it was the coolest thing ever and I just really, really enjoyed it. And so, you know, I think uh, in the 90s, it was kind of like the designers probably had a little bit more of a license to go crazy um, and to do insane things, which, you know, I'm, I'm kind of that an advantage for my own collection to create things because I don't really have any other head guys or marketing people saying no uh, Tanner you can't do that because it's just for my collection and you know I can come up with whatever I want and uh, I also have the benefit of you know kind of staying on the shoulders of the people uh, that came up with these amazing designs in the 90s and 2000s and uh, you know you look at the at the designers for uh, you know Pinnacle back in the day or Pacific I mean they all came up with like came out with these wild ideas. Like there's some that, that look like they're luggage tags that had pieces of string or ornaments or uh, mesh that, you know, kind of uh, looks like, a, was meant to look like warning track material. Uh, you know, they had all kinds of these, uh, you know, different things that they would do. Or uh, like Upper Deck, I remember there was one that they did, uh, it was SPX where, well, no, not even, yeah, okay, so SPX, there was a uh, 98 grand finale 
if I remember. No, was it called the grand finale? It was Trade Winds. I don't remember the exact name of it, but it was numbered at 50, and it was a sideways card. And so it would have uh, two different pictures. It had a picture of Conseco on the A's and on the Blue Jays. And it was like a refractor style uh, finish, but it also had, if I remember correctly, like a hologram that was embossed, which was really cool looking. And, uh, you know, they, they just did all these like really, really wild things with their designs and they, they used different things like Upper Deck for SPX in 96, I think it was, or 97, yeah, 97, where they would do a die cut with a hologram. And, uh, you know, so that's another instance where they used different technologies and fused them together uh, to see what would work. Like there's just this one marvelous, massive puzzle box of technologies that these companies were drawing from that they could use. And, you know, they came up with the coolest, craziest things. Now they didn't hit all the time, you know, like there, there's a number of inserts and parallels out there that are just like, they're ugly, you know, they're terrible. But the thing is though, it's like, that's part of the design process, right? Like, and I can appreciate that even though they weren't the most prettiest of cards because guess what, the 90s, I don't think that, uh, you know, from a standpoint of beauty for just the cards, for just what they are, I think the 90s stand alone. Um, I'm not sure there's anything in the 2000s or 2010s or 20s or anything that actually uh, can match that. And, you know, and there's probably some that do actually after thinking about it a little bit, but the 90s uh, is a very special time. And it's actually a time where, uh, you know, the card companies nowadays, they draw from this well of retro cards over and over and over again. Like, uh, I think it was Leaf or Panini or both trying to capitalize on the Crusade, uh, you know, cards and everything. You just, they, you know, like you can only have, you know, the original, the genuine article as being number one. Like you can never quite replicate the magic that they had back in 98 for the real Crusades. Um, beautiful cards, absolutely beautiful cards. And so obviously I think 97, uh, was really kind of when they started cranking out more uh, pack-inserted autographs. And I think 2000, if I remember correctly, Upper Deck was the first uh, patch cards that were introduced. So they went from, no doubt there were some regular, you know, game swatch cards, game you swatch cards before that. Uh, but the patches were introduced, I think, for 2000 upper deck game jersey patches and man those are incredible cards just beautiful cards and i think from then <laughs> let's see I, I think everybody else after the mid 2000s i think the only ones that were left was uh tops and upper deck and upper deck lost their license and you know one man stood and that was it it was tops and of course you have Panini and Leaf, but they're not licensed, you know, so it's just not the same. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, but as the years go by, uh, you know, there's something that that's missing, I think. Uh, and it's to no fault of 
tops or anybody else. It's just how it goes. You know, if you're if you're in a market, your uh, your goal is to crush the competition. You want to be the only one. You want to be the go-to company, and you know, tops is that tops one. You know, and uh, you know. So, and the thing is, is is they're not pushing out just blah stuff, right? They're pushing out incredible designs month after month, uh, eye-popping patches and beautiful signatures and incredible chase cards. And, and so, but the problem is, is that we're used to this now. So where you have a one of one, for instance, it isn't nearly as super exciting as, you know, 10 years ago pulling uh, one of one or five years ago pulling one of one. It's just a nine day difference because there's so many out there. And we've seen that happen with almost every type of card. So for Gamey's cards, little swatches, little square inch of, of uh, white swatch material, that was a big deal for a while. And then guess what? Uh, they started doing them one per box. And then I was like, okay, there's nothing. Then you have like these companies that are buying in bulk these game use cards for 75 cents each or whatever, a dollar each and or a dollar 25 each. Um, I was one of those people, by the way, I bought in bulk, uh, those cards all the time. And the specialness just seemed to lose, uh, uh, you know, seemed to get lost there, uh, somewhere along the way. And it's just because we've been exposed to it so many times. I think that's just what happens. Patches were a massive deal, and I think for the right patch, to me, I don't think I could ever get bored or tired of amazing patches, but <laughs> tell you what, there's some current players now uh, that they have a plethora of incredible, incredible patches, like jumbo patches and uh, Rawlings tags and, you know, just everything, like logo, uh, logo patches, and, you know, they're never-ending, and so... Uh, I don't think they'll ever get as ho-hum for collectors like the regular swatches have become, but you know, still I could see the excitement being lost if these become more normal. Uh, and I think they, to an extent, have almost a little bit right, you know, already as it is. So the next question is, as a hobby, where do we go from here? You know, let's say, now we've got fanatics. Obviously, I think they're uh, taking over the card market in 2025, and I think uh, you know there's. I think they'll probably continue on with the Topps brand. Uh, maybe they'll buy a few other brands out there and and all that. But still, it's going to be under the same umbrella. So, what happens? Are we going to have the status quo? What is now? Is it going to grow more into uh, NFTs, digital cards? Um, or are we going to see a different type of innovation in the actual hard copy type cards? You know, for me personally, that's what I would like to see. I would like to see some wild, crazy, weird uh, cards. Uh, something you could actually hold in your hand and get excited about displaying um, you know, on your shelf. And so I don't know if we'll ever see that again. Maybe the days of uh, cardboard innovation are gone. I don't know. 
What else can they do, right? What else can you do that hasn't been done already? Are they gonna put like fingerprints on cards? They've done that before. I've done that before. They're gonna put like entire bats in a card. I mean, who's gonna, you know, collect something like that? You know, so they've already done the knobs and the barrels and everything to death. What else is there to do? Um, maybe something where you step out of the box and a card or a box or whatever has a certificate that allows you to meet the players or whatever. You know, they do that with Transcendence. Uh, and so I think that would be cool uh, to continue that type of trend. Uh, and I'll tell you about Transcendent, by the way. Uh, what was it, like a $40,000 box or something? I mean, it's just absolutely insane. Uh, insane, insane, insane. Uh, but they have such beautiful cards that come out of there, of course. Uh, and a lot of them, they draw heavily again from previous year's designs. Uh, 83 tops, or they you know, have the the big bad mamma jam of the entire set being a super fractor and all that's just like a different brand name with a you know gold frame or whatever but the fun thing is, is having that ticket and i've seen pictures of these uh of these uh get togethers like i guess it's a party or something that they have where they have some like uh you know massive players there to do meet and greets and then you have grab bags and it's a dinner and all that and I've seen pictures of what Tops has done and I'm floored like it's it's really 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 neat looking guys like it's so cool to see this stuff and so they have like grab bags of uh, cards with like one of ones in them uh, and it's kind of funny right because it doesn't really take Tops a whole lot to do uh, things like this they just do the buyback thing right and they stamp it with their you know they take a 2018 Tops Tech card that's a base autograph, uh, stamp it, you know, 2022 Transcendent uh, VIP Party One of One or something, you know, and uh, <laughs> and you know that means something to collectors. It's exciting to get, uh, really kind of a cool thing. I, I'm sure I've had a few of those in my past as well. I don't really do to me too terribly many of those nowadays, but uh, in fact, I actually do have a Panini one of one VIP type card, which is just a beautiful, beautiful card. But anyway, it's uh, it's kind of fun to see Tops actually do that sort of thing. You know, to have like a ticket, like a, a Willy Wonka, you know, gold ticket, so to speak. Really kind of neat thing. So, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I'm kind of, my thoughts are up in the air, I guess, when it comes to where this hobby is going to go. Uh, you know, I would love, I've got a lot of ideas and I think in the next week or two, knock on wood, if all goes well, I'll have, uh, many ideas out there to show. Uh, and I hope maybe the card companies will look at it and, and start to get some more ideas as well. Uh, maybe you'll click with the collectors. Maybe you'll see what I've, what I'm doing and you'll get excited about it. And, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens, but in any event, uh, really kind of a fun thing to look forward and it's also a time where I think we can look back and be thankful for the competition that there was in the 90s and 2000s especially the 90s um, just because of all the super cool cards and innovations that came out of, of that decade is really cool so I know I'm very thankful for the cards I have from that time period for sure uh, in my collection but anyway so I guess that does it for tonight just uh, had some ramblings to uh 
to uh, spill out when it comes to my thoughts on innovations in the hobby. So past, present, and future. So thank you all for listening. Hope you have a great day.